This episode of Motley Fool Answers is supported by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Download their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, today at netsuite.com. Also, thanks to Grammarly for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Grammarly is a communication tool that helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear, and effective. Start writing confidently by going to grammarly.com to get 20% off a Grammarly premium account today. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Alison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brogamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Well, hi, everybody. Hey, bro. Hi. In this week's episode, Jason Moser is back to help walk us through the fascinating world of esports and gaming and how you can invest in it if you want, or how you can just shake your head and be like, kids these kids days. Kids today. Ugh, I don't know about that. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, bro, what's up? Well, guess what? Three things for you today. Number yes. one, you get a free trade, and you get a free trade, and you get a free trade. Had tip to Oprah on that, of course. So, everybody gets free trades. Everybody gets free trades. Almost everybody, at least. So, last week, discount broker Charles Schwab made headlines by eliminating commissions on equity and ETF trades. Not to be outdone, within a day, TD Ameritrade cut their commissions to zero, and then E-Trade joined in. Actually, even before the Schwab announcement, Interactive Brokers announced a new service, IKBR Lite, something like that. Catchy. Yeah. So, they eliminated trades on stocks. Of course, Robinhood's been doing that for years, and every brokerage has been offering free trades, at least on a select number of ETFs. Uh, so this is all generally good news. It's sort of like the latte factor for investors, right? It's like you're not spending that four to six to eight dollars over the course of the year. These more to be invested and compound that over decades. It's nice, uh, but brokerages are not charities, so they have to maybe making money somehow. So how do they do it? Uh, several ways, but here are probably three of the biggest. Number one, order flow. So essentially, brokerages have to go to someone else to complete the trade. They can go to the exchange and pay the exchange, or they can go to market makers. And the market makers are willing to pay a little bit to handle that trade. In a blog post at the end of last year, Robinhood's co-CEO said that they make about 2.6 cents for every $100 that are traded. So, not a lot of money, but that's one way that they do it. Uh, Number two, upselling to other products. So, it could be that these free trades are basically loss leaders. And they hope that once you open the account, you do other things, like maybe buy some of their mutual funds, maybe uh, use some of their financial planning services, maybe do some trades like that have higher commissions like options. Some of these people are still charging options trade for options trades, or using margin. Uh, and then number three, and this is the biggest, it's basically making money on lending out your cash. So according to an excellent article by Josh Barrow in the New York Magazine, in 2018, Schwab paid 0.2%, 0.27% on cash that you just had in your account. What would they do with that? Well, they would lend it out and make 2.57%. And they actually derived 57% of their revenue just on that 2.5% wow. difference. It's basically like being a bank. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's how they're doing this by offering the free trades, getting more assets in that way. They can lend out more. And also, uh, of course, you may use some of their robo-advisors with many of these brokers. 
Many of these brokers have cash in the allocation, so that's another way that they can sort of accumulate some of that cash. So, lesson here is, dear fool, to enjoy those free trades, uh, but don't end up paying for it in a roundabout way by letting a lot of your cash sit there in these very low yielding cash accounts. Either don't have a lot of cash at your brokerage, or if you do, go seek out some of the higher yielding options like a money market fund or something like that. Number two, driving your finances into the ground. Here's the recent headline from the Wall Street Journal, the seven-year car loan America's middle class can't afford its cars. So the average length of a new car loan these days is 69 months. That's almost six years, and it's an all-time record. A third of new loans are longer than six years, according to Experian, and that's up from just 10% a decade ago. So people are taking out longer loans for their cars. So what are the consequences of this? Well, first of all, generally speaking, the longer your loan, the higher the interest rates, so you're going to end up making, paying more for the car. But also, a car is a depreciating asset. At some point, it has to be replaced. According to car shopping site Edmunds, a third of buyers replace their old vehicle before they've paid off the loan. Oh. And they roll the old loan into the new loan. Oh, that sounds awful. Yes. The Wall Street Journal uh, article profiled a 22-year-old guy who, when he bought his new car, he pulled in the loans of two previous cars that he had already bought. And he's only 22. 22 22-year-olds are so dumb. (laughs) Speaking as a former 22-year-old. Yes, exactly. exactly. Anyway, so how are buyers able to get these loans? Well, to quote the Wall Street Journal article, quote, a lending machine has revved up in response, making it possible for more Americans to procure a vehicle by spreading the debt over longer periods. Wall Street investors snap up these loans, mm. which are bundled into bonds. This is this I can't believe. Dealers now make more money on the loans their customers take out than on the cars that they sell. Wow. So the article provided some numbers from JD Power. So a dealership, when they sell the car, they make on average just $381, but they make $982 on the loan on the car, which is almost twice as much than what it was a decade ago. So we've previously mentioned on the show the 2040-10 car buying rule of thumb. That is, you put 20% down, you get a loan that's no longer than four years, and that monthly payment should not be more than 10% of your gross income. But this is where it gets challenging for middle-income Americans. According to Bankrate, if you file this rule, the median income using the median income of uh, the American household, then folks should be be buying a car that costs $18,390. Unfortunately. The average cost of a new car nowadays is $32,000. We paid $22,000 for our new car. Well, and I'm guessing you did not get an SUV or something like that. No, we got a very base model station wagon with a manual transmission. Right. So, part of the reason why the average cost of a new car is going up is because, first of all, there's all the fancier things that just come with a car now the back of your camera, the, the, the display, and all that. But also, Americans have gone back to buying bigger cars. Um, anyways, but you can see why Americans are taking out these longer loans, right? If if the average new car price is thirty two thousand dollars, if you spread out that loan, it lowers the monthly payment and it gives you the illusion of it being more affordable. Uh, so the takeaway here is, as far as I'm concerned, if your finances are at all stretched and you cannot afford to basically pay for your new car either with cash. Or in a loan that is four years or less, buy used, as I almost always have done, buy small and aim to keep keep your car for at least a decade. How long did you keep your last car? 
before you bought this one? I think it was a 2000. I think we got it in 2002. So, yeah, there you go. I, I think at least a decade, yeah. if you can. All right, and number three, speaking of decades, what a difference a decade makes. So, mm. the Bespoke Investment Group, which has this active blog with all kinds of cool little stats, uh, sent out an email that broke up the trailing returns of the S&P 500 for various time frames as of the end of this September here. So, how has the index fared over the last decade? Well, most listeners know pretty well. In fact, over the last decade, it's returned 13.2% a year on average. That's higher than the 10.4% since 1928. And when you place it among all past 10-year holding periods, it ranks in the 61st percentile rank. In other words, it's better than 61% of all other 10-year periods. So, pretty good. But then they looked at the 20-year annual return for the S&P 500 as of the end of this past September. The average for all 20-year holding periods is actually 11%, Hmm. so even higher than 10%. But what about the most recent 20-year period? Only 6.3% a year on average, and that places it in the fifth percentile rank. Ouch! The bottom 5% of all 20-year holding periods. The reason, of course, is when you stretch it out over 20 years, you're starting in 1999, you get the dot-com crash, mm. and then the Great Recession. So, what's the point besides, I think this is just kind of an interesting stat. Well, first of all, much of what will determine the, the value of your portfolio really comes down to luck to a certain degree and timing. Like You could take two people who earn the same amount of money, adjusted for inflation, contribute the same amount to their 401ks, put it in the S&P 500 index fund, and the person who started in 1999 is going to have a lot less than the person who started in 1980, which was the start of the best 20-year period Mm. for stocks when it earned 18% a year on average. Uh, But the other point is, you don't want your financial plan riding on a single asset category and hope that your timing works out. The S&P 500 uh, is an index of U.S. large-cap stocks, and from 1999 to 2009, they were the worst-performing asset class. If you also held mid-caps, small-caps, international stocks, real estate investment trusts, even bonds, you did much better over that decade. Now, all those things have been a drag on your portfolio over this previous decade, because, once again, U.S. large-cap stocks have outperformed. But the truth of the matter is, when you have a diversified portfolio, you're never going to be beating everybody, but you're portfolio is not going to be tanking at, tanking at the absolute worst time. You're just going to have a smoother, even ride with a portfolio that's probably going to fare well in all kinds of future scenarios. And for me, that's a trade-off that I'm willing to take. And that, Allison, is what's up. Thanks to NetSuite for supporting Motley Fool Answers. If you're a business owner of a growing company, you know how hard it can be to keep track of all your most important metrics because you're dealing with a hodgepodge of business systems. You have one for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory, and so on. It's a big, inefficient mess, and that hurts your bottom line. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly, right from your desktop or phone. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com. That's netsuite.com to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, netsuite.com. Jason Mo 
Mauser is back. Hey, hey. How you doing? I'm well. How about Fan you? Fan favorite. Oh, Jason I Moser. can't believe that. I've never seen any emails or tweets to support that kind of nonsense. That's not true. Really? Uh, I don't think it. so. How we see that? Favorites? Yeah. Definitely not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No way. Well, I'll dig us some proof afterwards. Yeah. How about he, how about he'll do? <laughs> I'll take that. They're like, eh, okay. Uh, well, anyway, the last time you were here, we talked about the battle for our television viewing and cable and streaming, and uh, it was a good chat, and it was something that I knew something about. But today, <laughs> we're going to talk about something that I don't know a lot about. And so I'm going to be using a lot of words that I don't know the meaning of. <laughs> That's uh, perfectly cromulent. Exactly. Oh, I've had one what of those. Said. Isn't that like the what's a croissant and a? It's like a big thing in New York. They wait in line. Oh, not. That's what you're talking yeah. about. Yes, that's a Simpsons thing. So yes. So today we're going to talk about gaming and esports and. Let's just see how it goes, and all of our listeners that know way more about this than I do can go ahead and just email us afterwards and email us their thoughts. Well, to be very clear, I'm sure there are a lot of listeners that know a lot more about gaming um, any sports than probably most of us in this room do, um, at least from a user's perspective. I mean, we, we look at this market, obviously, from an investor's perspective, um, and, and so that'll be the difference. So, I'm sure we'll get some terminology wrong or mess something up. But, yeah. you know, people will email and tweet and let us know, and, and we appreciate that. We do. Thank because you. Because it means they're listening. Thank you. Uh, keeping us honest. So, right now, as we are talking, the League of Legends World Championship is waging in Europe. And, bro, I can tell <laughs> that this means a lot to you. So, what uh, is it, yeah. wh- what does this even mean? Well, League of Legends is... a a game. I'm not even going to try and describe what kind of type of game it is, but it's a game that people play, and uh, it's one of those esports competitions that happens. See, I'm already off to a great start. <laughs> but what? The point is, is that supposedly last year's League of Legends finals were watched by a hundred million people, and while that's still very small compared to the billions of people that watch World Cup soccer or Olympic ceremonies, keeping it in the area of sports, um, that's roughly the same as people who watch the Super Bowl. It's wow. a lot. So today we're going to talk about, again, gaming, esports, maybe a little gambling. Maybe. All right. Well, let's start off with some fun stats. According to research from Limelight, gamers play on average in the U.S. seven hours and seven minutes each week, which is up 20% over last year. Do you want to guess what country um, where gamers play more on average than the U.S., more hours on average? China. Yeah, I think I'm going to go with China. It's Germany. Germany. Oh, On average, gamers wow. in Germany yeah. play almost eight hours a week. Um, then comes the U.S., then after us is Singapore. Most of that time is spent on mobile games. Uh, average two hours for gamers. Uh, computer follows that, 1.5, not, well, almost two hours, essentially. Uh, and then console time, uh, an hour and a quarter. So, most people are playing casual single-player games like Candy Crush or Angry Birds. Um Gamers, it probably isn't going to surprise you, 26 to 35, spend most of the time playing. They're about 8.21 hours a week, and those over 60 spend about 5.63 hours playing. Oh, yeah, right? Because it's easy to think of as being like a young person's yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, but actually, it's not. And games are so much more like when we think of games and gamers, we think of like dudes 
in recliners with their Call of Duty <laughs> headsets on and they're like playing marathon like for hours and hours and just eating Frito pie straight out of the bag and I don't know. Am I the only one? Is that the only? That's what. Comes no, to I mind think that's a, pretty, that's a pretty safe stereotype. I that's, feel yeah, like. it's a good yeah. stereotype. Like, right, like that's the stereotype. But the truth is, a lot of people out there play games. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you you look at the numbers in gaming. I mean, go back to 1995. You had somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 million gamers in the world. Uh, today, it's 2.6 billion. So you can see how how big that. Um, is today, and also when you consider the global population, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of seven billion, I think, at this point. Um, there's still a lot of room to go, and I think that really a lot has happened in a short amount of time to open up that audience. But you mentioned mobile, and mobile really is the key to it all. When you look at the global games market value um, in 2018, mobile was 63.2 billion dollars. That was up 13 percent. Then you had PC at 33.5 billion, console at 38 uh, billion. So mobile has really picked up a lot of share in a short period of time. And that makes perfect sense, right? I mean, now we've got these smartphones in our pockets that uh, do virtually everything. and and gaming has has, you know, changed. The nature of these games has really changed. I mean, I remember when I was five years old, and I'm not going to tell you how many years ago that was, but it was long enough back to where my my birthday present when I was five, was the Atari mm. like the the, the Atari yeah. console that you hooked to your TV? We had a Coleco. Get, yeah, I mean you get Pong and like Space Invaders, and yeah. so that was that was really to me the coolest thing that could have ever happened at that time in my life, and and it was really just getting started at that point. But gaming was kind of prohibitive, video gaming at least at that point, and and, and today it's extremely unprohibitive. I mean you can get a game. Uh, just with a couple of clicks of a button on your phone, and uh, that opens up a lot of opportunities uh, for a lot of different players in that value chain. Yeah. Um, so when you think about the different, so there's uh, consoles. So like you think about a PlayStation or a, I don't know Xbox, Xbox, whatever yeah, things like yeah, that. People playing Nintendo, on your computer, I mean, Nintendo. Uh, I used to love me some Mario Brothers. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, good. I had a Nintendo. I had a yeah. I had probably one of every one of them. When I was oh up, yeah. Um, and then when you think of mobile, you think of there's also the added revenue generator of ads. Yes. You don't have ads. You don't have that on a console game. You don't have that on a computer game necessarily. Um, so is that much of a game changer? Does that make mobile like people are moving to mobile because they are also moving to their phones? But there's also the added benefit of. Ad revenue. Yeah, I mean, there's advertising revenue. There's also the in-app purchases now, to where you can play a game, and you know, in order to reach a certain level or to do something different, you can make a purchase here and there. Those little microtransactions really add up. Um, and, and obviously, your phone is more or less just a bank as well, so you can buy virtually anything you want, anytime you want. Um, and so, yeah, I mean. There are a lot of different opportunities to monetize in gaming today beyond just what historically was. You sell that physical game to the individual, right? The consumer goes in and buys the the Donkey Kong cartridge, and mm-hmm. then the money has changed hands. That's Done. it, yeah. right? You don't take that purchase. That that purchase doesn't extend into the future. I'm not upgrading that cartridge. I mean, it was just that one time. Now, I mean, you've got games. That live much longer lives because of new iterations, new, uh, new, new stories, new themes, new goals, or whatever. I mean, you have think about Activision Blizzard with the games that they're really well known for, World of Warcraft and Call of Duty. I mean, those are the franchises, but the stories that you can tell within those franchises are virtually endless. I mean, they're they're actually 
it, it, they can keep on going as long as they have the creative juices to keep coming up with new stories. And, and, and they have. They've done a very good job with that. Um, so, really, it is about coming up with a, a compelling universe and then figuring out ways to tell all sorts of different stories. And you also see a lot of these gaming companies partnering with all of these bigger companies out there with all that cool IP. Think about Disney, for example, um, and Marvel superheroes and whatnot. So, just a lot of different ways to do it. And, and uh, anytime you see big market opportunities out there, you're going to see companies go out there and pursue them. There's also the added element of community when you talk about specifically thinking of World of Warcraft that you mentioned. Um, my husband used to play World of Warcraft, uh, <laughs> and he was in a guild. And these are real people where you are you are getting together with real people around the world, and you are going on raids, and you are doing these, accomplishing these things together. And so yeah. having that element of community also makes these games more sticky than when your community was just the kid next door who would come over and play Donkey Kong. Like no doubt. I mean, I think a lot of people really enjoy. The the fact that they can play games together, and you know, we were talking before we started taping here um, about how just ten years ago or so, Farmville was on Facebook, and Facebook was still a relatively novel concept for a lot of people at that time. And the attraction and being able to play Farmville and then talk with your friends about what you're doing and, and how that's working. There was a social dynamic to it, and, and certainly Zynga is a company that. Uh, was on the forefront of of bringing social and gaming together, and partnered up with Facebook to be able to get out there in front of the widest audience. And I think a lot of of um, producers these days, game publishers and whatnot, are all using that social aspect, that social dynamic, when they consider the games that they're making, because because it is something that matters to a lot of people. Thanks to Grammarly for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Grammarly is a communication tool that helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear, and effective. Grammarly Premium looks out for special grammar, plus advanced punctuation, structure, style within context, vocabulary suggestions, conciseness, and readability for different occasions. Easily improve yourself and your communication at school, work, and across platforms, including online browser extensions, desktop editor, and mobile keyboard checker. I personally got to use Grammarly, ooh, and still get to. It still helps me catch so many mistakes and improve the clarity in the messages that I have to send to everyone at The Motley Fool. It is very, very stressful. There are a lot of tough editors here at The Motley Fool. So, it helps me look smarter in front of them anyway. Go to Grammarly.com slash fool to get 20% off your Grammarly premium account today. That's Grammarly.com slash fool for 20% off your Grammarly premium account today. So you talked about um, by name Activision Blizzard. Mm-hmm. Zynga is still around. I don't even hear the Zynga name. Zynga is still around. Yeah. As a matter of fact, and I guess I could say this, it's it's a recent recommendation in Stock Advisor. Oh, really? David Gardner uh, picked it out in Stock Advisor uh, several months back. Uh, just saw some good things they were doing, and David obviously is a, a big gamer. So for him, that was neat to see uh, that Zynga maybe has got a second act. So when you when we're talking about other game makers, a lot of them are going to be small, privately held companies. Um, but what other are there any in particular that you really like? Uh, yeah. So you've mentioned Activision, Blizzard. Zynga, yeah, I mean there are going to be a lot of game. There are going to be a lot of companies that a lot of our listeners and members are very familiar with. I mean, Tencent is one that I think is important simply because it's it's basically the biggest gaming company in the world. I mean, and that's based out in China. Um, and and uh, so Tencent, I think, is always one to consider. Activision, Blizzard, Take Two Sports, 
those are all companies that are available for investors today. One that I've got my eye on that's not public yet, but I'm really I'm excited for it to go public. I think it will go public at some point. Is it's a company called Niantic, and mm-hmm. Niantic is the the company that was behind Pokemon Go, uh, behind the new Harry Potter Wizards Unite mm-hmm. game, and those are games that were very mobile based, uh, incorporated augmented reality, which you know I love, um, and and I think that right now, if you want ownership in Niantic, you've got to own shares of Alphabet. Google still, Alphabet still owns a little piece of that company. But I think at some point here in the near future, we'll see Niantic go public. Uh, and that to me would be really exciting because that's a gaming company that really is focusing on a lot of this future technology and AR and VR and, and mixed reality and whatnot. It's funny that you mention um, Niantic because you know I was saying the stereotype of what a typical gamer is, and which is not me. Like I was not <laughs> describing myself, but like I'm like, oh, I play the Harry Potter game. Oh, I play Pokemon. I, oh, I play several mobile games. I'm like, oh, wait a second. I'm, I'm a gamer. Can I ask you a question <laughs> about the Harry Potter game while sure. we're at this? Because yeah, I'm yeah. not the biggest gamer in the world yeah. anymore. I mean, I like going back a ways and hitting that arcade downstairs where you've got Donkey Kong and Miss Pac-Man right. and Galaga. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we, I downloaded the Harry Potter game and fiddled around with it for a little while just to get familiar with the technology. That seemed to me to not be the easiest game in the world to play. Like I couldn't figure out exactly what was the ultimate goal. Yeah, it's a bit confusing. It huh? was a bit confusing. And I yeah. never played Pokemon Go, so I couldn't make the comparison there. But of Pokemon Go, I'm assuming you played Pokemon Go. I did play Pokemon so Go, yeah. What was your take on those two? Uh okay, so I live um in Old Town Alexandria, which is a pretty pretty dense, umly populated place. And so that really helps when you play these games because there are specific real world places that you have to go to right. to do things, right? So you have to go to um, specific places to get more spells if you're playing um, the. Go Harry to the Potter Washington game. Monument and get this thing. Right. Yeah. But it's also like, it's also just like the CVS on the corner gotcha. or the whatever, or it just happens to be. But they've put the, all of these locations are more dense where people are more dense. So yeah. it becomes much easier to play when you live somewhere where, that, where it is densely populated. And basically, you just walk around and do stuff. And yeah. so you're walking around and you look on your map and things will pop up and you tap them. And then, oh, look, it's a Dementor. I need to cast a spell to catch the Dementor. Or maybe I do, maybe I don't. I don't know. Rick used to play Pokemon Go. He can also describe it too. And my kids are big into Harry Potter's and the Harry what, what Wizard Wizards World. Unite. Wizards Unite. Wizards Unite. Yeah, they play that as well. It's it's definitely in the tween demographic. Uh, those games are great. And there's not a really objective other than to gain levels, I guess. But. Just keep having fun. Yeah, and there is a community. I mean, yeah, just to level up is is a goal. Um, and there's also a community element to both of them. Definitely with Pokemon Go. Um, you were supposed to come together to take down really, really big Pokemon. Um, and we did, and we actually made... Fr- oh, I'm sounding like such a nerd! I love it! Uh, so we actually made friends, because you have to go to these specific locations at specific times to capture a specific special Pokemon, and, you may, and you're like, oh, hey, how you been? Oh, I saw you the last one. And then we became friends with people at the PTO, and we would go out together. That's funny. And, yeah, well, so, you connect the dots. I mean, we were talking about Tencent, and I mean, I, for people who don't fully know Tencent. I mean, it's a, they do a number of different things in China, but Tencent owns a controlling stake, uh, controlling stake in Epic Games, mm. and Epic Games is the home of Fortnite. Mm. And mm. I'd be willing to bet that everybody out there has heard of Fortnite. So, if you want to invest in Fortnite, you invest in Tencent. Oh, so, okay. there you go. That connects the dots. You have Sorry, to say, yeah. as, a, as a parent, 
you know, Fortnite is everybody's nightmare as a parent. <laughs> yeah. Whereas the Pokemon Go and the Wizarding thing, like my kids ask me, like, hey, can I go for a walk? You know, right. they, yeah, like, yeah. they want to go outside. They want to go out in the neighborhood. They want to go do things. Yeah, they might walk in the middle of the road in traffic without looking up from the phone. But, <laughs> but other than that, but you know, yeah, no, I mean, I'll, I'll go with them. Well, my son and I all go yeah. on a pokey walk. We call it. And yeah, just, you know, oh, it's yeah, much better than than Fortnite. Yeah, because Fortnite is basically they're just going around and like killing other people. That's right? putting the headset on, saddling up, and then, and then like yelling at people for a while, and being yeah, mean and saying angry seen. things and yeah. killing each other and dancing. Which is the downside of social, right? I mean. Not all social is good. There are a lot of people out there in the world who just aren't very nice. And unfortunately, these social aspects let them all come to the forefront because there really isn't accountability. I mean, there's no like gaming police that's going to yank your card if you're being mean. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it mm-hmm. is, it is, they do suffer from all of the things that these social platforms today suffer mm-hmm. from. Uh, so, those are always things to, to keep in mind. I mean, I think Rick's example there is a, an interesting one. Yeah, well, like Pokemon Go and um, Wizards Unite is kind of like to make an analogy to like a board game. They're like cooperative games, kind of. You can play them on your own, but they are like cooperative, so you don't need to be mean to other people. Yeah. Whereas games like Fortnite, you're trying to kill other people. <laughs> but, but you can. That can be fun, and that you can be fun, and you can kill each other good naturedly. <laughs> And you can join on the team with your friends. My my 15-year-old daughter does a lot of Fortnite. Oh, yeah. And she does it with her gymnastics friends. They all form a team and we have been they take on horrible people throughout the world. Very lucky that neither of my daughters have just expressed any interest. I mean, they'll fiddle around with some games on their phone from here uh, here and there, but never never got bit by the Fortnite bug. And Pokemon Go, I guess, was just a little bit before they really got their phones. They got to have so, a phone, yeah. 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 One other thing with my son who did a lot of the Fortnite and stuff like that, where used to be, like you said, like you'd go to your friend's house and pull out the Atari and stuff right. like that. You don't go to your friend's house anymore because no. you can just play online. Yeah, I'll meet I mean, you, you on the TV. Yes, yeah, so that made me a little sad. Aww. You don't have the same, like everyone's getting together in the basement and then you, you know, Sitting get cross-legged get on the, the shag yeah, rug. Yeah, get out the snacks and, and then yeah. watch it. Well, movie. I mean, you think about that. I mean, like when I was a kid, I mean, you get out on your bicycle and you ride wherever you want to go. I mean, now... People aren't doing that as much because they don't have to actually go to the physical place to get there. Right. I mean, there are virtual ways to get there, and so it's it's a technology is, it giveth and it taketh away, and you gotta just you gotta deal because there's nothing stopping it. Yeah. All right. Well, that's maybe enough of a bunch of uninformed old people talking about <laughs> a young man's game. Uh, so or let's a woman, move on. young woman's game too. Young woman's yeah. game too. That's true. Uh, all right, let's move on and talk about esports. Um, and you know what? Actually, let's check in on on how a, a battle is going on right now. Boss uses the shape splitter. Huni trying to get the damage down, but Boss flashes away. Lever with the first blood, and Anderson going him. in. Void Seeker chases him down, and Huni can't get away. And, and now Mira's trapped. Stuck. And with the rest of the unicorns coming in, Lever trying to get away, but he's not yet level six. No one jumps forward. That's two for the unicorn. That sounded intense. <laughs> I know. And that's basically how it is the whole time. Yeah. And that was, a, I mean, just so everyone knows, that wasn't like a real live humans playing sports. That was a game. That was a game. Yeah. And was... there's an announcer describing the yeah. people playing the game. Yeah. Team Clutch Gaming versus Unicorns of Love. <laughs> and I mean, to imagine it, it's basically a bunch of chaos and, uh, you know, mythical creatures kind of like attacking each other, but I have no idea, absolutely zero idea what I'm watching. I just know that it's intense. Yeah. So, yeah, so we have these intense, epic games where people come together, and, and Fortnite too, um, and then they battle against each other, and it's turned into 
a, a sport. Yep. Like football. A spectator. Yep. A spectator sport. sport. I mean, it's fascinating, and I know it's difficult for a lot of people to wrap their uh, their minds around. But the fact of the matter is, number one, esports is a thing. It's growing. It's not going anywhere. Okay. So just because you don't get it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, but in its simplest definition, esports is a form of competition with video games. Um, but I, the way I try to explain it to people is think about when you sit down to watch a basketball game or a football game or a baseball game. You're sitting down watching a sport or a game that you are interested in, and you're watching people who are better than you do it and do it at a high level. That is what esports is. I mean, you're sitting there watching teams compete. Um, and, and presumably you're watching because you're interested in the actual game that they're playing. And and so esports is something that has actually been around for a long time. It's really just starting to gain uh, more traction now because I think the growth in the number of people who are participating, the market opportunities that exist out there, uh, it, it's it's too much for some of these companies to, companies to not pass up. And so we we've seen a, a lot more on esports here. Uh, in the recent past. And I'll also add that if I sit down and watch a football game on Sunday, I can't then go out and play football. That's right. Whereas if I watch these games and I'm an avid gamer, there's a reason why I might watch one of these, because I could learn something and then I can go and take it to when I play. That's a really good point. I mean, I think a lot of people use uh, things like YouTube and Twitch because uh, they know they can watch people perform at a high level and learn how to get better. Hey man, I use YouTube to try to figure out how to get better at painting watercolors. Right, right? Oh, and you're doing a fine job. Yes, thank you. you. Are. It's one of those it's things true. where you just constantly want to try to get better. So hopefully, I'll do that for the rest of my life. And, and from that perspective, I mean, I can understand why esports, in theory, should be around for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, well, then you have to believe that they're going to be uh, competitive forces at play and market opportunities to capture. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about how esports are kind of set up, um, specifically. When we're talking about like League of Legends, Dota, that's a that's another oh, game. What I did some research. So you've got the game makers. So like you said, Riot Games makes League of Legends. That's owned by Tencent. Um, Dota is Defense of the Agents. Dota Two. That's made by Valve. That's a privately held company, though, right? I believe so. Uh, Activision Blizzard makes Overwatch and Call of Duty. So these guys kind of control the game and the world. But then you have they. Franchises. They have, they basically get paid by franchises. Can you explain a little bit how this works with the teams? Because it is very similar to it, other sports. Well, and I was going to say that really is it is it's easiest just to draw the parallel between any of these other sports leagues. I mean, if you go back to 2016, for example, there was an organization called Major League Gaming, which was essentially building out a league of of gaming for esports. Uh, Activision Blizzard. Said, hey, you know what? We like this space. We want presence in it. We want to try to uh, own it. And so, Act, uh, Activision Blizzard bought Major League Gaming. And so, you will you will see as time goes on, the game makers are also becoming the companies that are dictating these leagues and the way these leagues shake out. But ultimately, it is just like any other kind of sport. You've got the sporting organization, the governing body, and then you've got uh, franchises that are going out there as a part of that league. And then you have, depending on the demand that's out there, you have any number of ways where people will be able to actually compete in those leagues, whether it's through a series of competitions to qualify or just money to pay up. Um, but but the, the bottom line is that, yeah, you've got the leagues, then you've got uh, the, the gaming companies that participate in those leagues that make the games and help support the leagues and, and help monetize it. Okay, so we've got the people that make the games, and then there's these other smaller companies that kind of build the teams. 
and then they have to pay franchise fees to the game makers, and then they also have to pay the sport, the actual people playing the sports, the athlete. I don't know. We don't call them athletes. Do we call them athletes? I don't know what we call them. I don't. I mean, I, you probably should. You're going to offend someone if you don't. But I'll say this: you know, it is something where at some point or another here in the near future, esports is going to be part of the Olympics. Yeah, that's what they um, so, were saying. That's LA was saying that if they get if they get the 2024 Olympics, they're thinking about including esports. They were trying to bring it, to which the 20... I think makes Bro's head want to explode. <laughs> Am I right? They wanted to bring it to the yeah, 2024 yeah, he's games. Shaking his head. <laughs> they 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 wanted to bring it to the 2024 games. I think they just don't feel like they're quite there yet yeah. to be able to fully seal that case. Um, my guess is I, I I would bet on esports being in the Olympics sooner rather than later. Okay, wow. and so then we also have so we got the team, we got the games, we got the franchises that manage the teams, and then we also have viewing platforms. That's another yeah. way that companies are kind of making money off of esports. So watching streams on YouTube, Twitch, that's owned by Amazon, Amazon Facebook, yeah. Twitter, all these all these sites. Of what um, what other companies are these? Are going to be companies that are going to sound more familiar to us investors, <laughs> right? Like Amazon and. Google or Alphabet, Facebook, like these are names I know that are making money off of esports. Yeah, I mean, you've got these these traditional the big players in the gaming space that we know. I mean, this is all really kind of going back to ultimately distribution. I mean, mm-hmm. you're seeing the physical video game uh, die away, and it's really becoming more about the, the digital content. And right, so you just need a way to get that digital content. So companies like Apple and Alphabet and Microsoft and Sony, uh, EA Sports, they're building their own streaming services, or they already have them in, in most cases, uh, so that people are able to stream those games. Um, and, and then you look at other companies that are in the space. They may not be gaming companies, but like you mentioned, Facebook or Twitter or Twitch, which is Amazon owned. Um, any, any, I mean, ESPN, which is Disney owned. I mean, any media company, any entertainment company that could stream this content looks at it as an attractive opportunity because you know the demands out there for people to watch it. And so, if you can work out a deal where you can stream this content on your site, then you're going to be able to monetize it through advertising, just like traditional sports has always been monetized through advertising. It's just a matter of catering to your demographic and getting the economics right. Yeah, and so like speaking of economics, uh, there's a really great article by uh, Cecilia D'Anastasio over on Kotaku. Um, basically, she's saying that all of the numbers you see about esports being this amazing thing that's going to generate a billion in revenue next year or whatever, um, she did this really great article about how um, it's a bubble and how esports is really not as big as we think it is, and the companies that are putting out the numbers saying that. It's um, in competition with the Super Bowl that there's more eyeballs in the Super Bowl. All of these people who are putting out these numbers uh, are coming from people who are vested in seeing esports take off. So we're talking about venture capitalists, and we're talking about um, companies that uh, follow the business and want obviously their research to do well as the as the industry itself does well. Um, and so she wrote a really great article, which gets back to what I feel has been the theme of my year about how we are. If esports is a bubble, um, VC, like VC is a bubble. Like VC and IPOs are. A, it's like every time I'm looking into a new industry, <laughs> it's well. Here's the problem: it's full of VC money, and it's inflating this to where it's gonna burst. Yeah, well, VC money is very dangerous. I mean, we'll look at WeWork as the most recent example of. 
private valuations only mean so much, right? And and uh, just because that's what a company may be valued uh, at in a private setting doesn't mean that's how it would be valued in a, in a public market. And, and the public market is where we care, and that honestly is going to be the most efficient at the end of the day. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I understand where she's coming from, and I won't necessarily push back on the bubble part, because I actually kind of agree with it. I mean, I think when you have anything that's really new, that's getting a lot of press, that's an easy way to generate interest and get people to invest more money into it. So, I think to call esports at this point overvalued uh, on a dollar perspective is probably spot on. I don't. I don't think that's a, that's a really a big problem. I, w- I would argue if she's saying that she doesn't think that esports has a future. Like if she doesn't think esports is going to grow to be as big as we think it's going to be. I, I mean, I would push back on that. I mean, the audience is the audience, and, and I mean, there is. It's easier now to capture engagement metrics and user metri- metrics than ever before. I mean, in 2012, the esports audience size was around 135 million. Most of those people considered themselves occasional viewers. You fast forward to 2018, we're looking at around 400 million. Again, more occasional viewers than habitual viewers, but the numbers still tell the story there. And the projections are, of course, that that is going to continue to grow. Uh, because when you look at the overall gaming population out there and think esports and gaming are joined to the hip, I mean, 2.6 billion gamers today, that's going to continue to grow as more and more people around the globe come online, get mobile technology, uh, and learn how to use it. Yeah, and no, definitely the article. And she talks to a lot of um, industry experts. Uh, definitely, the article is there's something here. Yeah. But this is hyped up, and it's it's unsustainable. Like all of these companies, um, for example, the the companies that are putting together the teams that they then pay the franchisee the fan- franchise cost to play the game to have teams playing in these tournaments and things. They're not, none of them are making money, and none of them have a path to making money. Essentially, I do, I do agree with that. Most of the pure play esports companies are, are not attractive investment opportunities. Like for what is out there on the public in the public market for us to consider, I wouldn't even consider it because you're right. The, the economics don't really work yet. Mm-hmm. There's just there's just not enough there uh, yet for it to really make sense from an investor's perspective. Which is why we continue to recommend if people want exposure to esports, get it through the traditional gaming companies that are leading. The way because esports is going to be another facet of their business. Um, but when you consider esports, generally speaking, I mean, listen, we live in a country now where I mean, we have lots and lots of colleges that are building scholarships around yeah. esports and building esports facilities. Majors, yeah. I mean, yeah. you can actually get a college degree and go through as as an as an esports. To be, to be fair though, it's expert. the industry. Right. So it's not like necessarily like Ohio State University has a major, but it's more like if you were to go into like sports management. So it's not necessarily um at least as I understand the major, like I may haven't get graduating with that degree. It's more like a sports management as opposed to you're just you majored in part of the sports. Sports. Yeah. yeah. Um so you suggest investing in the companies that are invested in this, but not pure plays. What are some that you like the most? I mean, Activision Blizzard. Activision Blizzard is the one that comes to mind mm-hmm. first. I mean, it is the it is the company that has been on the forefront of the gaming market for so long. We've liked it here for a long time in the Molly yeah. Pool, Obviously, um, it's done very well for us as an investment. And you know, it is one like I mentioned. They bought Major League Gaming, and that was a big deal for them. I definitely think Tencent is a company to consider when you look at this space, because again, when you have that scale and that number of users and the resources that the company has, uh, a lot of different 
different things they can do with it. Um, and, and plus, I mean, you know, they have that exposure to Fortnite and, and other gaming properties as well that'll, that'll come down the line. And, and then, I mean, you can't go anywhere talking about investing and not recommend at least taking a look at Amazon, right? I mean, Amazon is big for a number of different ways, but Twitch has turned out to be a really smart acquisition that they made a number of years ago, paid around $1 billion for it, but it generates a tremendous amount of traffic, a tremendous amount of minutes viewed, and it just seems to keep on getting better. Um, so, Twitch, I think Microsoft is another good one. Microsoft is a tremendous presence in the gaming world, and I think that's only going to get better as we see more technology and mixed uh, mixed reality coming out. So, those are a few, at least, that come to mind. Yeah. Every day when I go home, I play my Xbox. One game. Oh, really? Star Wars Battlefront. Oh, that's no a fun kidding. game. That's the way I see yeah, every day. It's a fun game. But just one game, not more than one. Wow. Got to limit it. Otherwise, man. <laughs> would you play it? Would you play until morning? I would. Yeah. I would play quite a while. DNF willpower. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you mentioned Stock Advisor, and so I just want to let our listeners know that if they're looking for stock ideas and recommendations, that they can sign up for Stock Advisor. You'll get stock recommendations from Tom and David Gardner every month, Best Buys Now, and a whole lot more. They can go to saoffer.fool.com, and we've got a special 50% discount for our listeners. So, again, check it out at SA, for stands for Stock Advisor, offer.fool.com. I do want to say one more thing, because this is a 50,000-foot view of the gaming industry and esports and how that all works together. I mean, anybody who's interested in this space, anybody at all, you need to make sure you go check out, you know Aaron Bush, you know the name here, I'm sure. Um, You can follow him on Twitter, at AaronBush100. But Aaron has a a site that he's built, that he's working on, it's called Master the Meta. It's it's a project that is all based around gaming and esports. Aaron is uh, he's a big gamer. He's very, very knowledgeable of the space, and, and I look to him often to get ideas and thoughts on it as well. So, if you are interested in this space at all, follow Aaron on Twitter. Check out his site, Master of the Meta, because it. I mean, I've looked through it already. It is a lot of stuff, a lot of very educational stuff coming from what I consider to be uh, an expert in the field. I considered you an expert in the field. I'm just the wrong get person Aaron on the show. show? You, can, you can have two <laughs> experts, right? You Nuts. can have two experts, right? Oh, okay. I guess we need to do a do over with Aaron <laughs> sitting there. Now I value your opinion too. Well, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You know what? We said we were going to talk about gambling, but we didn't. We'll have to save that for another day. Save that for another day. All right. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. As always, The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks we talked about on the show. Don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what you heard here. Listen to Aaron Bush instead. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. Well, that's the show. It's edited Leroy Jenkins Lee by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. Don't forget to email us and tell us what we got wrong, uh, because I'm sure there was a lot. All right, for Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. At least I got chicken.